Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word touches our hearts. It has a sharp edge. It challenges, it cuts, it restores, it transforms. We pray this morning that we may hear your voice as Elijah did. And by your grace, may we respond to the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. There are, pla- there are places in Upper Egypt where you can stand with one foot in the uh, cultivated area and one foot in the desert. The line between the two is that sharp. The area of life and growth and crops and food and water and on the other side dryness, sterility and death. And in some places it's as sharp as that. If you fly over the, the Nile Valley, you can see that on the larger picture that is uh, uh, inescapably the case. The, the Nile Valley is green, uh, cultivation, and then suddenly the desert begins. Um, if you have had the opportunity to go to Jerusalem, um, if you climb up the mountain, Mount of Olives and stand on the crest of the hill looking eastwards, after all the busyness and the life and the vibrancy of, of Jerusalem and its surrounding communities, you stand on the crest and you look out and there is nothing but desert down to the Jordan River and on a reasonably clear day you can see the Dead Sea. That is a a powerful reality of the Middle East, and it's a powerful reality of the the lands of the Bible, the the contrast between those places of life and fertility and water and human community and the places of death and sterility and dryness, uh, of desert and cultivation. And it's not surprisingly one of the key images of the Bible, one of the key realities that underlie the Bible story. The story of Eden and the fall of humanity is about that in a way. It begins in the Garden of Eden, which is watered and fertile and full of fruitfulness. And through the rebellion of Adam and Eve, they are expelled from there into the place of dryness and struggle and where cultivation is hard and harsh and where there are thorns and so on. Uh, The central story of uh, Israel's experience is the story of uh, being delivered from slavery in the land of plenty, slavery in the land of cultivation, slavery in that Nile Valley I described to you, to freedom in the desert. It's uh, an interesting play on uh, different realities. And we just touched on the story of Jesus and uh, his temptations in in the desert, uh, mirroring in his 40 days there, the 40 years uh, for which uh, Israel wandered in, in the desert, in the wilderness. In the Bible as well, the picture of the desert is also a picture of, of human life and of our own journey and our own experience. Uh, 
and is used as an image for uh, crucial human experiences. Um, Psalm 107 uh, is worth looking at in your own time afterwards, but Psalm 107 is uh, a psalm using a succession of powerful images about uh, God's salvation and how God reaches down to rescue human beings and, and make them safe. And the very first sort of cameo that the, uh, the psalmist provides goes like this. Some wandered in desert wastelands, finding no way to a city where they could settle. They were hungry and thirsty, and their lives ebbed away. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. And there are about another four or five uh, sort of little cameos of, of a similar character in Psalm 107, which are talking about uh, the, the inner journey of the people and the inner journey uh, of human beings. Um, our experience of finding ourselves in desert landscapes, uh, contexts where we are thirsty and hungry, uh, feel under threat, and uh, God's desire to bring us to a city where we can dwell, to a place of uh, provision and safety. Um, and there are many other passages, as I've been talking, you've probably been thinking of other biblical passages, where that, that contrast between the, the place of water and, and fruitfulness and the, and the desert place are, are contrasted. Um, Ezekiel 47 is one that uh, is, we refer to a lot, and a Christian is very precious to Christians, about the water that flows out of the temple and brings life to the desert and even makes the, the Dead Sea uh, full of fresh water. The desert, in Bible terms, has two different meanings. And it's important to understand um, how these relate to each other. Uh, negative meanings and, and positive meanings. The, the desert is the place of dryness, of thirst, of hunger. It's the place of threat and death, of danger, of fear, emptiness, weariness. It's the place of rebellion and sin, it's the place of being burnt out, of being uh, just exhausted and spent. On the other hand, the desert in biblical terms is the place of potential. It's the place where God can bring new life. It's the place of possibility, the possibility of new beginnings. The desert is the place of change and of hope and of purification and of, uh, and of new, new beginnings. It's interesting, I, I think, and it, uh, for this reason, the story of Elijah is enormously powerful, I think, and enormously important, because it not only uh, brings very uh, colourfully to us the story of Elijah, but I think it also reaches deeply into human experience, uh, the nature of spiritual experience, the nature of our life with God, and the nature of change and growth uh, in, in our lives. And it is both the place of danger, of threat, of exhaustion, and it is the place of hopefulness and new beginnings. I wonder where those, that uh, sort of spread of words touched you. The words I used there. Dryness, thirst, hunger, threat, death, danger, 
fear, emptiness, or on the other hand, potential and possibility and change and hope and encounter. I wonder, I wonder which of those words struck you uh, as connecting with you in some way. Perhaps some part of your past life, perhaps a, a situation you find yourself in now. Where does the desert address you this morning? What aspect of uh, life in the desert connects with you and your journey this, mo- this morning? It's also, it's also true that the image of desert, of the desert, connects with us in uh, broader political and social terms in our world today. We will not quickly forget the image of Omran Dakesh, the little boy rescued from the bombing in Aleppo this week. We will not be able to forget how uh, a fertile, a prosperous, uh, uh, a sophisticated country has been turned into a desert by human violence and human war. We cannot quickly forget the refugee camps and the refugee migrations and movements that have uh, accompanied that war around the world. Neither can we forget the way in which we are making a desert of our world in the context of climate change and that as a a race we show extraordinary resilience to uh, addressing it. The desert. The desert and Elijah. So what I'm saying this morning, suggesting this morning, is that not only is the desert a crucial reality for Elijah and his story, but it is for us as well and for our world. What we're talking about in this passage is uh, all of our journeys in life and how to understand them well. Let me just touch on the key elements in that story as we uh, just reflect on it together. It begins, and its reference is made to it at the beginning of our passage, but we didn't read the story. It begins with an an extraordinary, dramatic story of victory and triumph in which, uh, a very violent story as well, in which uh, the pagan uh, religious world of the king's wife, Jezebel, all her priests and all the idolatry that went with it, all the human sacrifices that went with it, were overthrown in a great uh, confrontation of power uh, on the top of Mount Carmel, uh, in which the God of Elijah and the God of Israel was vindicated. And in a a story of drama and violence, the, the, the priests of Baal, uh, were, were killed. You, you know, many of you know that, that story. And Elijah comes out of that on uh, an enormous uh, height of uh, spiritual power and emotional energy and emotional drive. And we then read how, with the prospect of rain coming after a long period of drought, he runs before the king uh, to Jezreel. Uh, I've forgotten the distance, but it's a good number of miles. Um, He is energized, he is upheld, he is empowered, he is driven uh, by the power of the Spirit 
um, Elijah knew nothing like it uh, again in his life. Um, exhilaration, exaltation, uh, an anointing with the Spirit which drove him and empowered him. Um, the rest of the story is cast in a different place. Jezebel sends him a chilling word. Just know that by this time tomorrow, you will be exactly as those priests you have slaughtered. And the whole thing crumbles. What was triumph in the spirit, what was power in the spirit, falls away. There is a parallel here, actually, with the story of Jesus and his temptations, because just before it, you have the story of his baptism in the, in the Jordan River, and you have uh, that extraordinary uh, uh, authentication of his life as the f- voice comes from heaven, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased, and he has a sense of being anointed and, and, and filled with the Spirit. And... It is a moment of triumph. It is a moment of exaltation. It is a moment of complete knowledge of of God's blessing and provision. And from there we read, he is led by the Spirit into the desert. Notice the positive and negative things at work here. For uh, Elijah, it was fear and dread that drove him into the desert. In the story of Jesus, it is the Spirit who leads him into the desert. Both things are at play. Elijah is consumed with fear and he runs uh, for his life. He runs an awful long way. He runs from the north of the northern kingdom of Israel to the far south of Judah to Beersheba. I'm not sure the distance. It would be a good hundred miles, I think, in which he he escapes uh, to get as far as possible away from the threat of, uh, of Jezebel. He's exhausted. What's, ha- what's happened? How should we describe this? There are natural human things at play. He's been on an extraordinary height of emotional and intellectual and spiritual uh, energy. And he's exhausted. He is spent. And, and we might know something of what that's like to be in a place of energization and, and of work and of commitment and of achievement and, and then to collapse in the wake of it. I, doubtless some of our uh, Olympian athletes are experiencing something of that at the moment, just exhaustion, emotional, physical, spiritual. And in that position, he's vulnerable. The threats, the criticism, the fear... Uh, lead him to a place of of collapse, of um, just emptiness, total emptiness. He flees, he runs for his life to the far south, and he goes to Beersheba, and he goes further. He leaves his servant behind, and he goes into the desert, and he reaches there the bottom of the pit. Total despair. From the height of Carmel and its exaltation and its victory and triumph, he is now in a place of total emptiness and total despair. Take my life away. I've got nothing left to live for. I've done my best. I'm no better than my ancestors. 
I take my life away. This is describing, uh, in very dramatic, very powerful terms, actually, uh, experiences which are at the, the center of human, the human journey and at the, and at the heart of our, our spiritual journeys as men and women seeking to walk in the way of Jesus. The, on the one hand, there are those times, those important times of uh, anointing and of uh, empowering and of provision in, in, our, in our Christian life and service. On the other hand, there are those times when exhaustion, burnout, uh, tiredness, weariness, perhaps rebellion take over and we find ourselves empty and in the desert. That image from the air, if you fly over Egypt, of the sharp line between the place of fertility and the place of emptiness uh, can, can well describe our, our own journey in life. At that moment, the provision of the Lord enters the picture again. This is really, this is really important, and I think, I'm not sure how you are resonating with, um, with this story as, as I, I try to just open it up a little bit. I'm not sure where you're placing yourself in this story, whether you're on Carmel in the, in the moment of uh, achievement and, and success, or whether you're... Uh, aware of the uh, anointing of the Spirit, whether you are in, in the wilderness, whether you are in the desert. I don't know where you place yourself in this story, but be assured of this, that, it, that the whole picture is a, is a picture of uh, our, our journey as human beings and as, and as uh, Christian disciples. It's in the desert then, in the place of despair, in the place of being right at rock bottom, that the provision of God comes in. God cares, he knows, he is already there, he finds us in our place of despair. We will never fall out of his care. And the first thing that happens is sleep. Rest. How often, if, I don't know whether it's your practice to take retreat days or weekends, how often is it the case that the first thing that happens is sleep? And we need to be uh, aware of the, uh, the fact that as human beings uh, in, with a bodily life, that, part, that a key part of our spiritual journey is its nurture, its recovery, um, and for rest. Sleep. Rest is crucial. It's the principle of Sabbath that uh, after six days' work, the Lord himself rested and invites his people to rest. Recovery begins with rest. And he wakes and divinely provided there is food and there is drink. There's rest and there's provision for his needs. Even though he's bankrupt, even though he's in the pit, even though he's run away, even though faith has evaporated, even though he's in a place of despair, the Lord has not left his, his servant alone and meets him with rest and with food and with drink. I think it's interesting in the story, it happens twice almost as it's sort of emphasizing 
just how crucial this is to uh, our journeying and our recovery as, as Christian disciples. He wakes and then he goes back to sleep and there is a second provision of food and drink. Because there is a deeper and a longer journey ahead. He travelled one day into the desert, but now he has a journey of 40 days ahead of him to come to the mountain of God. There is a deeper journey to take place. And I think there is something actually really profound in this and something for us really to lay hold of. We can all, in some sense, perhaps without the drama... Uh, resonate with this sense of success, achievement, exhilaration, exhaustion, collapse, uh, discouragement, and uh, of our need for rest and nurture. We, we can recognize that. What we often fail to recognize is that that's not enough in the divine purpose. That is not enough in what God intends. He wants to take us on a deeper and a longer journey. Recovery through rest and uh, provision is, is not his full intention. He wants to take us to a place of new discovery of ourselves and of him. We can undertake the one, journey, one day's journey into the desert. It's only supernaturally resourced. It's only through God's leading and God's provision and God's strengthening that we can engage on the longer journey, the deeper journey, that actually is his intention. Elijah has not come to the desert for rest and recovery. He has come to the desert so that he may go to the mountain of God and have an encounter that will change him. What's this journey about? Goodness, I've been talking far too long already. Um, it's about getting back to the source. Why does he go to Horeb, Why does he, which is the same as Sinai? Why does he go there? Because he's going back to the origins. He's going back to the source of the faith that uh, has made him and has made his people. He's going back to the place where the covenant was established and where the law was given. He's going back to meet God in that authentic, original, rooted way. So he's going back to Sinai. He's going back so that he can be put back together with the basic building blocks of the faith in God. He's going back for a foundational encounter for us. Uh, a foundational encounter with God. If we had time, I would try and, in a little way, uncover for you what, what this has meant for me across my life. And if we had time, I have little doubt that many of us across this church would be able to say, this is what that deeper journey meant for me. This is how I actually got beyond the place of ups and downs, achievement and recovery, and actually went on that deeper journey at, uh, at God's calling to a place that actually remade me in the, in the pattern that he wants for me. We could do that if we had time. 
Elijah comes in the end to Horeb and he rests in a cave overnight. Then in the morning there is this question. It's actually given twice. Um, It comes first of all as Elijah comes out of his cave and then there is the, uh, the encounter, the still small voice and then the question is asked again. So it sort of Uh, embraces this story at beginning and end. And and the question is this, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? I found it really interesting when I was on sabbatical a couple of years ago that just as I was about to set on it, out on uh, the journey to Iona and then to northern Scotland, uh, a woman at the retreat centre I was staying at, addressing other people, not me, I just happened to be present, used this very question. You're on retreat. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Why have you come? Both occasions, Elijah gives an easy answer. Both occasions, uh, Elijah, in a way, just sidesteps it. He takes refuge in a defensive answer. He takes refuge in a rather pathetic answer. He answers, well, you know, I, I've done my best. Um, I'm all alone. No one follows you. I'm, I'm left, and, and this, is, that's, this is me. Um, I've done great things on the mountain for you, God, but now they want my life to take it away. He's defensive. He's pathetic, in a sense, This question is actually a very troubling question. It's a question which strips us naked. Every answer to this question we recognise as being defensive or in some sense pathetic until we answer it the way it needs to be answered. It's interesting, I think Elijah doesn't actually answer this question properly. The answer to this question is, I'm here for you, God. That's the answer to the question. Elijah can't find words for it. He defends his history. He describes how broken down and empty he is. It's a question which strips us down to fundamentals. Why are you here this morning? Why do you participate in the life of this church? What is your discipleship about? Why are you here? What's at the core? Okay, let's just strip away the the first answers that come to mind. The only true answer, my brothers and sisters, is this. I am here for you. I'm not here for the noise, the fire, the thunder, the drama. All that was paraded before Elijah. I'm not here uh, for all the things that went on on the top of Carmel. I'm not even here for all the things that I am told went on at Sinai long ago, thunder and lightning and Uh, the giving of laws and the establishment of covenants and trumpets. I'm not even here for that. I'm here for the still, small voice. That phrase is, in fact, 
pretty well untranslatable. And every English version has another shot at it. It's a voice that's not a voice. It's a voice that's a murmur. It's a voice that you're not sure which side of hearing it lies. Is it above the level of sound or is it below it? Is it within me or without me? What we are hungry for, my brothers and sisters, what we are truly at our core hungry for is not the trumpets and the thunder and the lightning and the victories of Carmel and the dramas of Sinai. What we are hungry for is the still, small voice. What we are hungry for is the encounter which is heart to heart with the one who is ultimately real. At the moment I'm reading a book which gathers together some of the reflections of Dietrich Bonhoeffer on the Psalms. And it was just interesting this morning he actually addressed this very issue and the thing which struck me uh, about what he said was once once you have identified not quite his words but once you have identified that this is the true longing of your heart it's a lifelong thing you will never escape and the bewildering and the profoundly beautiful thing about about this is that God rewards those who hunger after him, who seek his face, who seek him. He rewards them with even greater longing. The satisfaction is in the longing. That's why this story is actually of colossal importance, in my mind, in in Scripture. Because not only does it speak about the remaking of Elijah, who becomes the the prototype of all all prophets in the Bible, um, but it also precisely addresses each of our journeys. So it's not about the noise, the fire, the thunder, the drama. It is about silence and listening and attentiveness. It's about breathless awe and deep wonder. It's about a gentle whisper, a voice not quite audible, a touch not quite discernible, a presence not quite embraceable why are you here Elijah why am I here why are you I am here for you oh God There's just one more phase to the story, which we won't delay on, but it results in a recommissioning. This deeper journey, this deeper journey, 
makes a recommissioning possible. His task is to cause two revolutions and appoint his successor. His response, his calling, his new task is in the public sphere. It's out there in the open. It's about turning around the politics of his nation. It's about turning it round and turning it in a Godward direction. It's about causing two revolutions and recognising he's done his job and it's time for someone else.